Hello and welcome to Complexity Unpacked with Professor G. This is our 10th episode in the Ethics Unpacked series, and today we're going to talk about social contract theory. So just as a heads up, a full and in-depth analysis of the writings of Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and John Rawls is well outside the scope of this course. However, they have contributed greatly to the subject of political philosophy and justice. Even though this is a very brief snapshot of their writings, it is an important point of consideration that informs our understanding of social contract theory. So as an umbrella theory, social contract theory aims to base ethics on actual or hypothetical agreements between human beings. It challenges the notion that what is right must depend on a divine being, consequences, principles, or even virtues. Social contract theory argues that ethics does not exist until people can agree on how to act. In a modern sense, this would be something agreed to by consensus or norms, rather than each and every individual explicitly agreeing to something. The formal name for this way of thinking is contractualism, but it's more commonly referred to as contract theory, and for our purposes we're just going to refer to it as social contract theory. Contract theorists take implicit contracts as models for understanding. They focus on contracts people would make if they were thinking rationally. Now this already exists in the world as we already live by many basic agreements on how to treat people. Not all of them are codified, but all of them are at least understood at a basic social level. The social contract is then the rules or laws people live by and are held accountable for if violated. Again, that can be formal or informal. Social pressure to conform deals with the informal rules of society. And the law and legal sanctions deal with the formal rules of a society. The contract forms the backbone of almost all modern societies. And some people believe it creates the ethical standards of a society. The key to a social contract is being able to rely on the fact that all other people will also agree to live by it. It's what keeps society functioning. Government has a group of people hired to enforce the social contract, and that would be the police, or law enforcement writ large. Law enforcement make it possible for most people to generally live their life free of intrusion from others. So think about that as maintaining law and order, for example. And law enforcement combined with the judicial system does the job of maintaining that social contract. Now, the first prominent thinker we should look at and talk about was Thomas Hobbes. So he's the originator of modern social contract theory. He's a 17th century English philosopher who authored the highly influential book Leviathan. One of the first attempts, uh, it was one of the first attempts at coming up with principles of an ethical theory that was non-religious. So to give some context, Thomas Hobbes lived during the time of the Civil War when the British monarch was at odds with the parliamentarians, right? And he rejected the divine right of kings. That's the belief that kings or queens um, were invested with authority directly from God. And that thinking, and that divine right of kings thinking, was that the authority was absolute. And the basis of political obligation 
was in the obligation to obey God, absolutely, under religious obligation. So they made that connection that because the kings and the queens were appointed by God, following and, obe and being obedient to God was the same as the obligation to being obedient to the king or queen. But his view was not that simple because in many ways he did support his monarch, right? And he was a little bit opposed to the parliamentarians of his time and he rejected in part the early democratic views, which left him in an interesting middle ground position. So Thomas Hobbes would argue that people in the absence of a social agreement would live in a hypothetical state that he referred to as the state of nature. And the state of nature analogy is used by all the thinkers that follow him. So it's an important point to consider and an important concept to understand. So according to Hobbes, the state of nature would be an undesirable place because humanity would live in a perpetual state of war of, uh, of, war of all against all. And life would be, quote, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, end quote. He based this assumption on the belief that people are naturally selfish and egotistic, leading them to be only motivated to do the things that satisfy their own self-interest. However, it was not all doom and gloom for Hobbes. He also believed that people have rational capacity, which would allow them to pursue their self-interests as efficiently and maximally as possible. What he understood from that is, while people were self-interested, cooperation actually allowed them to further their self-interest in a more efficient way. So according to Hobbes, the justification for political obligation is this. Given that men are naturally self-interested, yet they are rational, they will choose to submit to the authority of a sovereign, meaning a government or the monarch in Hobbes's context, in order to be able to live in a civil society. And the point of all of that living in a civil society is to find an environment that is conducive to their own interests, which he argues the state of nature would not be. So while living under the authority of a government can be harsh, he argues that it is at least better than living in the state of nature. He also believed that no matter how much people may object to how poorly a government manages the affairs of the state, or how poorly they regulate the lives of the people that they are responsible for, they would never be justified in resisting governmental power because it would be the only thing that stood between them and anarchy. From this you get that what Hobbes is really arguing is that because men's passion, and again I use the word men in that gendered context as provided by the original author in the convention of their time, so he argues that men's passion can be expected to overwhelm their reason. And the government must have absolute authority. So in his case, the king or the queen must have absolute authority in order for the contract to be successful. Basically, what he's saying is that it involves individuals giving up their right to decide and judging for themselves. Right? We'd call that alienating your rights, which is to give up and never get back. And if you think that that sounds harsh, in many ways, it is the foundation of a lot of our organized modern democracies. We give up some rights to the state, and in exchange, they provide us protections and safeguards and guardrails. That is not a foreign concept. Just stated this way makes it sound a little harsher. 
Now, he was a person that truly believed the sovereign, the king or queen, needed to have absolute authority because you could not decide on issues of conflict if you didn't have absolute authority. He also believed that having absolute authority gave them the capacity to punish or sanction transgressions. And he felt that, that was an important part of maintaining the social contract. So with the government establishing the law, layers of agreement can finally exist in his view. right? And by, judges, uh, by judging disputes, the government can actually create the difference between what is right and wrong. So think about it like case law, right? The judge decides on an area where the law might be ambiguous. In a modern sense, the whole government serves in the role Hobbes viewed as the sovereign. It makes laws and runs a, judi a judicial system that punishes people who do not uphold their end of the social agreement. In a democratic republic, the rule of law underwrites agreements between people. So the second prominent thinker is John Locke, and John Locke is highly influential. Uh, well, he was highly influential in the um, formation of the American Constitution and in informing the views of a lot of thinkers that followed when establishing government. So he added to the theory and made some notable contributions that have influenced the modern understanding of social contract theory. According to Locke, the state of nature, which he also uses that device, except he sees it a little differently than Hobbes. According to Locke, the state of nature, the natural condition of mankind, is a state of perfect and complete liberty. And in that perfect state, one might be able to conduct their life as one best sees fit, free from all the interferences of others. Now, the state of nature, although a state where there is no civil authority or government to punish people for breaking the laws, is not a state without morality, Locke would argue. So to Locke, the state of nature is pre-political, but not pre-moral. He assumed that people were equal to one another in such a state, and therefore equally capable of discovering and being bound by the law of nature. So we talked about this earlier, but I'll give you a quick recap here. The law of nature, which in Locke's view is the basis of all morality, is given by God who commands that people not harm others or threaten their life, help, liberty, or possessions. So he is different from Hobbes here, who sought to disconnect the theory from religious belief. Notice as well that for Locke, possession and property become a particularly important basic right. If you read more about John Locke, you'll see some controversial views that relate to property and the formation of, you know, the American colonies. But that is outside, again, the scope of this course. Political society comes uh, into being then when individual men, again, gendered by the original writer based on conventions of his times, representing their family, so when individual men representing their families come together in the state of nature and agree to each give up the executive power to punish those who violate the law of nature, they then would hand over that power to the public power of a government. Basically, what he's saying is, in a state of nature, every household or every individual would have the executive power to deal with people that transgressed on their life, health, liberty, or possessions. But in everyone's best interest, what he's suggesting is that people needed to surrender that executive power to a government, right? And then the government assumes that executive power should all start to sound very familiar to you, 
right? Because in many ways, the modern context is built on this principle. So once they surrender that power, they become really subjects to the will of the majority. In many ways, the modern version of democracy. Now, where Hobbes was referring to absolutely surrendering rights to a monarch, he believed absolutely that once you give up your rights, you never get it back. Well, John Locke will also say that once you give up your rights, you never get it back, but he incorporates the modern notion of elected governments. So here he argues that people do not give up. They don't alienate their rights to an individual, right? So keep in mind, he's still saying you have to give up your rights to the greater good of the will of the majority. But he's saying we do not give up our rights to an individual. Rather, we loan the right to enforce and create laws to the elected office. Right? And that would be done by voting. So he distinguished between the executive branch of a country, think the president, the prime minister, or other elected officials, and civil society, the people who make up the electorate. So by voting, we loan our power to the elected office. But what this means, in essence, is that if people generally disagree with the laws created or the methods of enforcing them or the policies of government, then they can vote the person out of power and they can vote in a new person to occupy that office. This is the theory of elections, really. Decisions made by civil societies to continue granting power to the head of government or, if dissatisfied, to replace them. So our third thinker, Rousseau, also uses the state of nature. And he comes along a little further. He's a French Enlightenment philosopher. And he authored a couple of very influential essays. The Discourse on the Origins and Foundations of Inequality Among Men and The Social Contract. So Rousseau has two distinct social contract theories. And they're both worth mentioning. The first is his naturalized social contract. So it's an account of the moral and political evolution of humans from a state of nature, there's that analogy again, to modern society. So in that essay, what he was talking about was describing the state of nature and how we came out of the state of nature into modern society. And then his second theory is the normative social contract theory, an idealized theory of the social contract which was meant to address the problems that modern society had created. Now, according to Rousseau, the state of nature was a peaceful time. And the reason he believed that was because he believed that people lived solitary, uncomplicated lives. Their, their few needs were easily satisfied by nature. And because of the abundance of nature and the small size of the population, compete, a competition was almost virtually non-existent. And persons rarely ever saw one another, much less had reason for conflict or fear. People were that people naturally had the capacity for pity and were not inclined to bring harm to anyone else. So this is how he sees the state of nature, right? Again, a very different conception than either Locke or Hobbes. But here he starts to make a distinction. He says, as the population increased, the means by which people could satisfy their needs had to change. People began to live together in small communities. Division of labor was introduced because people had to be more efficient, right? They needed the land to provide more. And that division of labor occurred both within and between families. And then new discoveries and inventions were made that made life easier. But in making life easier, it also gave rise to leisure time. Now for Rousseau, this leisure time inevitably led people to make comparisons between themselves and others. And this, he would say, resulted in public values 
shifting. They changed to shame and envy, pride and contempt, right? Wanting and coveting what your neighbor had. So based on his views, he would say that the invention of private property, this idea that we could own land that was naturally, you know, existent, was the pivotal moment in humanity's evolution from a simple, pure state into one characterized by greed, competition, vanity, inequality, and vice. For Rousseau, the invention of private property is humanity's great fall from grace, out of the state of nature, right? which he thought was pleasant. Now, private property ownership, in his mind, created the conditions of inequality. Some people have property and others are forced to work for them, which leads to the development of social classes, he would argue. And then he sees this like property owners then go on and create a government that would protect private property from those who don't have it. And governments get established through a contract meant to guarantee equality and protection for all, even though its true purpose in his mind was to formalize inequalities that private property had produced in the first place. In other words, the contract which claims to be in the interest of everyone equally is really in the interest of the few who then became stronger and richer as a result of the developments of private property. This is the naturalized social contract which Rousseau views as responsible for the conflict and competition from which modern society suffers. Modern society of his time, of course. The normative social contract is then meant to respond to that state of affairs noted in his naturalized theory and to remedy the social and moral problems that have been produced by the development of society. So Rousseau argues that people can be free and can live together without succumbing to the force and coercion of others. But in order to do that, they need to submit individual will to the collective or general will. And they should do this by creating an agreement with other free and equal persons. So like Hobbes and Locke before him, and in contrast to the ancient philosophers, they all believed that people should naturally be equal and should have no right to rule over others. So for them, all three of them, the only justified authority is the authority that is generated out of agreements or contracts between free people. That gives you a quick overview of social contract theory. And our last thinker that we will talk about in this session is John Rawls. Now, John Rawls is a lot more contemporary. He was born in 1921 and passed away in 2002. So approximately 300 years after Thomas Hobbes uh, provides us the first theory, John Rawls repopulizes that theory. And he merged Hobbes' social contract theory with the ethical principles of Immanuel Kant. He stressed reason, right? So he wrote the theory of justice in 1972 and argued that people could rationally agree to principles of justice in organizing society. Now, Rawls argues that the moral and political point of view are really only discovered via impartiality. His theory is different from the other theories so far that we've covered so far because he is not making claims about how a person should run their life, but rather is applying his theory to social government institutions. It is an interesting take on both the state of nature argument as well as the social contract because he's viewing all of the organization of society 
based on impartiality and fairness. So you can see the common threads. Now, I will agree, and I will sort of um, position this very clearly. John Rawls is a lot more abstract in his view of the principles of nature, the state of nature. But his contributions do give us a lot of very important information and points of consideration. So how does he make the argument? He utilizes a thought experiment to illustrate this theory, and he calls it the original position. The original position is a hypothetical scenario where people imagine starting a society from scratch. However, to ensure impartiality, he suggests that people should imagine the society from behind what he calls a veil of ignorance. So let's unpack that a little bit. This is hypothetical, meaning the imagining how you would organize society, um, you know, right from the get-go if you had to start again. And what he's saying is that everybody, because we are generally self-interested, would look at our own social positions and then come up with policies that would advantage us, right? It would give us the most benefit. And so he's saying that's not a fair and impartial way to handle things. We should do it from behind a veil of ignorance. And this, he believes, will bring us a more sort of impartial sense of rule setting. So the veil of ignorance is a construct of a circumstance where participants would not know in advance what their place in society would be. They might be the most advantaged or they could be the least advantaged in society. And given that uncertainty, he believed people would rationally select a maximin strategy. So a maximin strategy would be one that maximized the benefit to people in the worst possible social roles. Basically ensuring that the worst possible scenario they could end up in would be as good as possible, right? Better than any other alternative somebody could imagine. And if you think about that, it's a really interesting concept. If you had to think about how you'd want to organize society but had no idea where you were in that society, you definitely want to hedge your bets that if you ended up in the worst position, it wouldn't be so crushing. And really, that's what he's saying people will do if they employ this maximum strategy, right? Maximizing the benefit for the people in the worst situation. And remember, in the original position, people don't know where they'll end up. So that's why he believes they'd pick a strategy such as this. The objective of the exercise is to ensure people come up with the most fair system possible given that inequalities will naturally be present in every society. So Rawls describes his theory as justice as fairness, because the conditions under which these principles of justice are discovered are basically fair and justice proceeds out of fairness. So he believed that justice as fairness was a form of social contract theory, because the people in the original position would actually agree to structure society in a way that constituted the principles of distributive justice. And just as a sidebar, the sort of definition of distributive justice is the perception of fairness in how rewards or costs are shared and distributed amongst people in a society. While the thought experiment might be hard to relate to one's personal life, I don't think that was ever the intent. The analogy works extremely well when applied to social policies and actual social institutions. So imagine yourself thinking, what type of police officer do you want to be in the future, right? And then you imagine, well, how would I want to police the most disadvantaged people in my society? Well, I sometimes go one step further and go, imagine the worst disadvantaged person in your society, in your society somebody that's very close to you. 
Now think about how you'd want policies to run to treat them if they did violate the law, right? Of course, I'm making the assumption that everybody here knows right off the top that nobody's above the law, and so the sanction would still apply to that loved one of yours. But I'm asking you, how would you want to establish the policy that would deal with that violation if you had no idea whether somebody in that position would be someone that was important to you? So that's social contract theory in a nutshell, and it gives you an idea of the thinkers of the time. In many ways, this episode wraps up the first half of the course, or the first half of my lecture series, Ethics Unpacked. We've covered many of the key concepts, and we will be moving to a more application-based style in the second half. Make sure to check out my next episode that will be released soon. I'm calling it Theories of Mostly Dead Men. What it is, is really a broad overview, and it is a broad um, representation of all of the content covered in the first six weeks of my in-person class. It's meant to sort of bring together all of the last 10 episodes and give us a way of thinking about everything we've already talked about. Looking back quickly, if you will, at this milestone and doing a check-in of the path we've already covered. So check out that episode and there'll be more to come in uh, the weeks to follow. Have a good one. Thank you for your support. And once again, thank you for listening to Complexity Unpacked with Professor G.